Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Clayton Brown will talk about Fermilab and the Higgs boson. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, the world as most of us know it is tangibly very real, yet the reason why objects have mass at all still remains something of a scientific mystery, one that may be solved by a tiny subatomic particle known as the Higgs boson. Well, joins today to discuss the search for the Higgs boson at Fermi National Labs is Mr. Clayton Brown. Mr. Brown is an award-winning filmmaker who also serves on the faculty up here at Northwestern University. His recent film, The Atom Smashers, chronicles the challenges of Fermilab scientists in search of the Higgs boson, and he joins today to discuss this very fascinating story. Mr. Brown, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks a lot. It's good to be here. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really certainly a very fascinating subject, and uh, you certainly should be congratulated for an outstanding film. But I, I'm curious, this is a subject that most people might not be very familiar with. I'm, I'm curious, what uh, drove you to the subject? Well, actually, about four or five years ago, I came across uh, a great newspaper article in the Tribune written by a guy named Ronald Kachulik. It kind of outlined the backbone of the story that is depicted in our film, which is the search for this particle that you mentioned, the Higgs boson, and the fact that Fermilab, the particle accelerator near Chicago, has a sort of a narrow window of opportunity to find it before their competition, the much bigger, faster, better, stronger, newer particle accelerator in Europe starts up. So this idea of this sort of fascinating search, it was also a race, really sort of set the, the hooks for me. And you really got sort of unprecedented access to visit Fermilab. I'm wondering, how did that come about? Well, it's interesting because a lot of people assume that Fermilab is like a secret government lab or that they're doing defense work or uh, high security type of stuff. But actually, they love to have visitors and they have a really active outreach program. They have art galleries and concerts and everything there. So they love for the public to come visit. Having said that, we still weren't sure if, if they were going to agree to let us have the kind of access that we wanted, which was just to be able to come in and film businesses doing what they do, contacting them independently of the PR office and that sort of thing. But what we found was Judy Jackson, the, the PR person there, just sort of em embraced us with open arms and she said, you know, we need to do a better job of communicating with the public what we do here. So she sort of saw our film as an opportunity to do that. So they essentially just opened up the place to us and we had total access and, and met with lots and lots of different people and get, got to the point where we would eat in the cafeteria and just felt like we belonged. It was really wonderful. Sort of had carte blanche then to do whatever you wanted. Yeah, we, we kind of did. I mean, within within reason, we couldn't go anywhere that was dangerous. 
that's probably a good thing. Uh, I'm curious, what were your impressions of the place? Well, it's strange because when you first go there, you don't really think that this is a high-tech center of the most advanced type of science done in the United States because there's really just one building, they call it the high-rise, that sort of rises up out of the prairie, really. It's just in the middle of, sort of in the middle of nowhere in these big, empty fields. There's a couple of buildings here and there that look sort of like um, warehouses. Nothing really tells you, oh, this is a high-tech facility, because most of that stuff is underground. The ring, it's a four-mile in circumference ring that is the actual particle accelerator called the Tevatron. That's underground. You'd have to be up in the air really to see that it's there because there's trees and it just looks like part of nature. What's really interesting is one of their first directors, this guy named Robert Wilson, designed the place and as sort of a PR gesture or community relations gesture, he had a herd of buffalo established there to sort of represent science done on the frontier, you might say. So there's that herd of buffalo 30, 40 years later is still there. So in some ways, it almost looks like a farm. It's really, it's really kind of unusual. Hmm. They have a bike path and trails that not just the physicists walk and run and bike on, but people from the uh, community around the place. Did you actually get to see the uh, Tevatron itself? We did. There was a moment in the film where they have a pretty substantial breakdown. One of the, the magnets, they, they have a, a ring of superconducting magnets that keep the protons and antiprotons going in a circle, because normally they would go straight, so they use magnets to kind of bend it in a circle. One of those heated up and sort of made some liquid helium turn into a gas, and it caused this explosion, and the beam broke down, everything sort of went haywire. While they were repairing that, of course, they had to turn the Tevatron off for a period of about two weeks. So they were gracious enough to let us accompany them down into the tunnel to sort of show us around a little bit. And we had to take a little, I wouldn't call it a class, but about a half an hour presentation about what to do if uh, alarms go off and we had radiation counters and oxygen hoods with us and really something. And they waved a Geiger counter over us when we came out just to make sure we hadn't been exposed to a lot of radiation. And they have a, a series of keys. If you could imagine like a, a car, uh, instead of just one ignition key, there were a row of like 50. And every single one of those keys has to be in place in order to turn the thing back on. So every person that goes down into the tunnel is given a key. So you keep that with you, and that way, if they try and start it up and key number 32 is missing, then they can find out, oh, someone might still be down there because the key's not in place. Uh, is that the moment sort of when you thought you were really in the heart of the lab? Yeah, that was just because the, the seriousness with which they take that facility and you know all the dangers and the, uh, the complexity of it it really does make you feel like we're in the heart of the beast. But there was an interesting moment because engineers are down there working, and I saw this little sort of cheap, like a boombox type of thing. And instead of an antenna, they just had a wire coming out of the boombox, and it was tied to this copper pipe that was just extending along the tunnel. And I asked about that. I said, "Can you? we're underground. How do you get reception here? And he, the engineer sort of 
pointed up there and said, this is a four-mile in circumference copper pipe. Right now we have the best AM antenna in the world. <laughs> so they're able to listen to uh, Bears games down there. That's, I think, the moment where I knew I was really at the heart of the beast. <laughs> <laughs> Curious, maybe you can talk about the scientific quest that was underway, the search for the Higgs boson. Yeah, this particle, if you remember from the film, there's a, a section where we ask several of the physicists to give us a definition of this particle. You know, what is the Higgs boson? And it's tough for them. You know, the, a couple of them sort of struggle. It's not that they don't understand it, but as one of them says, there, there are prizes offered to people who can explain the Higgs boson and why it matters. It's, it's a, the concept of it is not that hard then, but the, the technicalities of it are immense. Luckily, for the purposes of the film, we don't necessarily need to know the mathematics behind it. But essentially, the Higgs boson is one answer. They think it's the best answer to the question of what gives everything mass? Because there are theories about how the universe works are pretty good. There are a couple of problems, though, and one of the problems is the very small subatomic particles like protons and neutrons and electrons should not have any mass, according to these theories. But that's a problem, because if they don't have mass, then basically the universe flies apart. Nothing sticks together. There's no solid structures, no people, no planets, no suns. The universe just couldn't exist that way. So they knew that they had a problem. So this physicist named Peter Higgs came up with the theory that there's this particle that gives these elemental particles, like the proton, the neutron, etc., a mass. And that sort of solves this problem about these equations that should say the universe can't really work. And how it functions is, you can imagine a big field, it's called the Higgs field, that we can't see, but we know, or at least the theory says is there. Some particles go through that field pretty easily. Those particles don't have a lot of mass. Some particles kind of snag in it, you know, like a, a sweater gets snagged on a brick wall or something. And those particles that slow down more have more mass. So it's, it's the interaction with this Higgs field that gives particles the mass. So that's what they're searching for, proof that that theory actually is the way things get mass. This is obviously a very important issue in physics. Why has it been so difficult to actually find proof of this field? Well, until recently, they just haven't had machines capable of operating at the energy levels required to look for it. You know, the, the Tevatron, until CERN opens up, has been the biggest in the world. And it's just barely able to approach the energies that are needed to create and detect the Higgs. Now, CERN, as it's been in the news a lot lately, it's had all these problems, but it was operating several years ago and closed down to get a sort of a retrofit, a, a, to make it bigger and stronger. Um, many people say in order to find the Higgs. So it's seven times more powerful than the Tevatron. And those are the energies that a lot of people think are needed in order to actually kind of produce and detect this particle. So there's just been no way to really look for it until now. Mm. And as you mentioned, it was something of a race, really, to try and find it before the Large Hadron Collider comes online. Yeah, right, because some people who are 
maybe a little overconfident, <laughs> think that as soon as CERN starts up, it'll find it right away. So other people think, you know, it'll take a little longer. But regardless, most people think if it can be found, CERN will find it. So the people at Fermilab, naturally, would like to find it first. <laughs> so they're hoping, the nice thing is the Tevatron at Fermilab now is operating faster and better than it ever has. It's sort of at its peak right now, which is unfortunate because due to budget cuts that we talk about in the film, it's going to be shut down in 2010. And so America will no longer have a particle accelerator. So all of that work will shift overseas. We'll still take part in it. And the physicists, even the ones that work here at Fermilab, will be key players at CERN. But the machine will be there and not here. Mm. So yeah, they're hoping to find it first. <laughs> in the film, you do profile a, a number of very fascinating scientists. Uh, I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about their stories. Yeah, there's several. We talked to a guy that's sort of at the beginning of his career named Ben Kilminster. He's a younger physicist who also happens to be the lead singer of the Fermilab rock band. <laughs> called the drug-sniffing dogs. He also is a rollerblader. He rollerblades around the ring. And he sort of provides the real enthusiasm and energy and drive to find it first. He's, he says at one point, you know, older physicists have been a part of a situation where a particle is theorized, then they find it, and their theories are proven to be true. He hasn't been a part of that yet, so he's really excited to be a part of this momentous discovery. Then we profile a couple of people who are sort of mid-career. It's a married couple, John Conway and Robin Erbacher, and they're working both together at Fermilab, but they also teach in uh, California at UC Davis. So their life involves an incredible amount of travel. Twice a week, they're flying back and forth between Chicago and UC Davis, and then they also go over to, to CERN quite a bit. So we see at the end of the film that they're contemplating having a kid. You know, can a physicist and with this lifestyle even have a kid and, as Robin says, sort of remain visible and high-powered in the physics world like they'd like to be? And there's another physicist named Marcela Carena, who is from Argentina, also mid-career, but she already has a family and lives here, doesn't have to do the traveling. And she organizes the Fermilab Tango Club, which is kind of fun. At one point she says, physicists make pretty bad dancers. But, you know, they concentrate on the procedure and sometimes forget to listen to the music. But then there's the soul of the film, this elder statesman named Leon Letterman, who is a Nobel Prize winner, and he's retired now. He provides, I think, the spirit of the film, and we get to see him 30 years ago throughout the film. There's a, an episode of the old Donahue show where he appeared, and they're asking, and in a lot of ways challenging him about some of the same issues that are relevant today that the physicists still have to struggle with, such as why should we spend money on what you do instead of trying to find the cure for cancer? So we sort of illustrate that physicists have to struggle in the context of our society to justify what they do. 
Uh, I'm, I'm curious, so what are some of these scientists doing now? Well, they're all still at Fermilab, but the Tevatron is shutting down. Mm-hmm. So the married couple, John and Robin, are basically shifting gears to start working overseas at CERN. Marcella and Ben are, you know, they live here and they're employed by Fermilab as opposed to John and Robin who are teaching. They do less travel, so they're planning to stay centered at Fermilab, even though they'll have to do a lot of traveling to CERN. And and Fermilab does have a high-speed data link, so a lot of work can be done at Fermilab on the experiments at CERN. So that, but they're basically committing themselves to staying with Fermilab. And uh, John and Robin are making the leap to work at CERN. So it's, it's a mixed bag, and I think all of the scientists there have had to wrestle with that question. You know, do we, do we go where the machine is, or do we stay where our lives have been up to this point? I think a lot of them are going to choose the former because that's where the action is. Mm-hmm. Are they optimistic about the, the Higgs being founded, sir? I think they are. Uh, it's it's a mixed bag because, you know, as as scientists, they tend to favor the discovery and the knowledge over, you know, any kind of politics or cultural concerns. So they want to find it no matter who finds it and no matter where it's found. At the same time, I think they're all a bit troubled by the way America's relationship with science has sort of taken a left turn the last four or eight years. And the fact that they don't really have a choice and that many scientists are not going to be locating here in the States and a lot of grad students and postdocs are going to Europe because that's where the machine is. So they're concerned about the future of science in this country, even as they, you know, feel optimistic that this this new accelerator will find the thing that they've been looking for for so long. You know, sort of covering this from the outside of science, how do you feel science um, changing? Do you think it's going to change in the uh, current administration? Well, one of our scientists, John Conway, uh, he wrote a post on my blog and I think in a couple of other interviews, they're hopeful. You know, he he jokes that they they have the audacity of hope <laughs> that with this change in administration, they may see a change not just in terms of allocation of money, which they desperately need, but also in, in attitude because Obama has signaled, you know, that he's a, a believer in science and wants to support science, and I think the fact that he's from Chicago might be, you know, a little extra reason to hope that he might show some love to Fermilab <laughs> since it's a local thing. So I think they're cautiously optimistic, but they've, they've heard political promises before, and they've seen how quickly the economy can change and how, you know, it's just never a definite thing. So they, they have to wait and see what happens before they can really even think about it too much. Mm. Again, this was a very fascinating film, but I'm curious, do you have plans for uh, any uh, future uh, films? We do. We're still in the on the drawing board sort of stages, so we're not, we're not quite ready to reveal our master plan to the universe. <laughs> we, uh, we have to sort of get some uh, internal progress and figure out some of those sorts of details. But yeah, we, 
um, I'm going to plug our website right here, www.137films.org. And what we do is we tell stories that we find in the world of science. So this was our first film as a group, and we're really happy with the success that we've had so far with this film. And we're more dedicated than ever to starting up on our next one. Uh, well, the recent film is called The Atom Smashers, and Mr. Brown, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hey, it's been my pleasure. And you were just listening to Mr. Clayton Brown discussing Fermilab and the Higgs boson. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Particle Man, Particle Man, doing the things a particle can. What's he like? It's not important. Particle man. Is he a dot or is he a speck? When he's underwater, does he get wet? Or does the water get him instead? Nobody knows. Particle man. Triangle man, triangle man. Triangle man hates particle man. They have a fight. Triangle wins. Triangle man. Ready to play the game? It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic massive or insubstantial. So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you uh, would rate them as massive or insubstantial, and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Brown, ready to play the game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one, massive or insubstantial, Microsoft founder Bill Gates. You know, I uh, I wish I could break his life into two halves and rate each half. But probably the Grokathon 2000 probably wouldn't let me do that. Uh, you can do whatever you want. All right. So I would say Windows I would have to rate as insubstantial because everyone knows Mac OS is much better and came first. But all of his philanthropic work and... Once he decided to start giving away his money instead of trying to make it, then I would have to say it becomes very substantial. So he gets he gets a, a mixed grade. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, number two is the talk show host, Jerry Springer. Oh, man. Again, if you know the history of Jerry Springer, but this is going to be flip-flopped. <laughs> his first, the first half of his life, he was a great politician. He was a really pretty amazing guy and had a great political future. So that half of his life gets substantial. So he's massive. But then the show pretty <laughs> clearly insubstantial. Uh, well, maybe number three here will be a little more clear-cut. It's uh, the physicist Stephen Hawking. Oh, yes. Uh, no doubt about it. Completely massive. <laughs> and in the film, Ben Kilminster, the younger physicist that's the rock band lead singer, when we first meet him, he's holding a figure, a Stephen Hawking Simpsons figure with <laughs> a pint of beer in his hand, which is kind of funny. Uh, all right, number four, uh, massive or insubstantial, Paris Hilton. Oh, I think I'd have to say insubstantial for sure. I think that one goes without saying. <laughs> all right, and finally, number five, it's the outgoing president of the United States, George Bush. <laughs> 
it's tough because if his presidency hadn't caused so much damage, <laughs> I would give him insubstantial. But unfortunately, he's been pretty massive, uh, but not in a not in a positive way. I'm afraid. So I'd have to say, unfortunately, massive. All right. Well, Mr. Brown, I, I do want to thank you for uh, sticking around, playing our game, and, of course, talking about uh, the film, The Atom Smashers. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. All Thanks right. a lot. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs> <laughs>